Hey, welcome to Dad Bod History. I'm Eric. We've got Jake. We've got Jeff. And uh, we've got some kind of speed round again tonight. A little less speed. A little Medium more mellow. Speed. You know. But Moderate while you're speed. here, uh, hit like, subscribe, um, hit that notification bell so you can know when we send new videos out because uh, we've got some coming all the time. So do that. And then, um, yeah, what else have we got going on tonight? Well, Jake, you should probably start. <laughs> this is like the big <laughs> announcement. What? <laughs> you know, I would. So obviously, the Packers lost in heartbreaking fashion. It was funny watching that game because it got out of hand real quick in the third quarter. They were down by like seventeen, and then they scored a touchdown, and then they got, you know, they got it within eight. And then they got it, you know, and they scored again. And like, so they're getting back and then they got it within five. And I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, we're not dead yet. Like we got a chance here. And then they got these like clutch interceptions against Tom Brady and two of them on the same, mm -hmm. like two drives in a row, they got these huge interceptions. I'm like, all right, this is it. And then they just couldn't, they just couldn't capitalize on these golden opportunities they had to, to drive down, score, take the lead. And then on the second interception to drive down and pad this hypothetical lead that they should have had. And so I was going to, you know, I was going to take this time and, and uh, sit back and really prioritize and, and, and try to pretend that, you know, the, the real things that matter in life aren't football and it's like family and love and other stuff, but that's a lie. You, <laughs> okay. <So> don't. <laughs> I know we all liked it when we all lose. We're like, well, at least I got my health and my wife and my kids. And that's, and that's true. But it still hurts. Like, it still sucks to lose. And you don't have to, like, be Mr. Like, high road and be like, well, I don't even really care about football that much. I'm like, shut up, you do. You're just pretending because it hurts so bad right now. That's like when you get dumped. You're like, I didn't even like her. Well, then why are you crying in the bathroom? Because clearly you did. That's, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to grieve. So with that, that's where I'm at emotionally right now. So, so I, I may be in the minority in this. I've discovered that I don't dislike Tom Brady nearly as much when he's not in a Patriots uniform. Oh, it helps that he's not in is the AFC just, now? Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, or is it I just the know, uniform, just the colors? Together. It's, like, it's like Vader and Palpatine, but... But Vader goes off on his own, and it's 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 easier somehow. Here's what's <laughs> that's probably a good way to put it. Can you put that into Star Trek terms for me? Because oh my gosh, you know. no, no, it's not possible. <laughs> the closest you could get is the board. What was a um, tweet I saw tonight? Um, <clears throat> you know, who says like, you know, Tom Brady, 21 years in the NFL, and he finally wins his first <laughs> NFC championship. You know, just Talk proof that perseverance and grit pays off after time. <laughs> Good for him. Is he? Well, I mean, I guess he, I, I don't know if any other quarterback has done that. 
Uh, is he playing in his 10th Super Bowl? Yeah. yeah. Number 10. He's won six so far. That's amazing. That's a good record. You know what? I will say I do like Bruce Arians. I do like Todd Bowles because they're former um, when they had the Cardinals and they took they took uh, Carson Palmer to an NFC championship, I think. And they lost to Atlanta. Uh, no, they, they lost to Carolina. Oh, they did? It was Carolina. That was Arians. Todd Bowles was with... Um... But Todd Bowles was the defensive coordinator during the Arians years in Arizona. With Arians or was it with uh, the other guy was who it, took him was to the Super Bowl? Yeah. I, think it was with his, I thought it was with Arians. Because then he went to Pittsburgh, right? No, not no, here to the Jets. Jets. But anyway, I just like those guys. I like Todd Bowles. I like Bruce Arians. So I'm happy for them. Yeah, but... Bruce Arians uh, grabbed that trophy and uh, got three words before they had to bleep him out. It was awesome. So <laughs> good for him. Yeah, he's a good coach. He's done a lot. I mean, he's basically he brought Indianapolis when. Uh, Chuck Pagano had cancer. He led them to the playoffs. And then he went down to Arizona, took the head coaching job there and led them to the, uh, to the playoffs. And now he's done it again with. Buccaneers. Yeah. And now he's in a Super Bowl with uh, the Buccaneers. So he's something else. He's pretty awesome. So good for him, but anything else you guys do anything this weekend? Nah. It's been raining nonstop for like a week here in Texas. So there's that. I mean, rain is usually good. Uh, my son probably be off of his submarine at some point in the next two weeks. So looking awesome. forward to hearing from him again. Yeah. And the rest of the kids are seem to be happy and doing just fine. So it's all good news. Good. Not much to report past that. Oh, I will tell you yesterday uh, I did uh, me and, and the wife took the kids to uh, this place called Fossil Butte in Wyoming. And it's only about uh, two hours or so away from our house in, in uh, Utah. And it was snowing though, pretty much the whole way there. And by the time we get to like the side roads off the highway, like I'm trying to find these turns and there's snow and my daughter like starts talking to me right as I'm about to make the turn. So I missed my turn like twice. And so then the third time, I'm like, I'm not going to miss this turn. I'm not going to miss it this time. And so this is like the final turn. And she starts doing it and talking to me. And I'm turning. I can't slow down. And I'm in my minivan. And so I just power slided into the turn. It was amazing. I felt like I was in high school again. Um, and I just <laughs> rolled with it. And my wife, she put her hands up. She's like, woo! And then my daughter starts yelling at me, Dad, you're not doing this right. I'm like, you don't tell me. <laughs> How to drive. I tell you how to drive. It was awesome. And it was a good, I mean, the, the museum, the, the actual trip was nice too, but the trip, the, the adventure getting there was almost more fun. So minivan power slides. I know. I love it. Long story short, Welcome we're probably going to have to get a truck, but I really enjoyed power sliding. So. All right, you ready to do this, Eric? You want to intro us into our topic? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so we're talking explorers. We're going to kind of do what ten minutes per explorer. Bring some explorers to the table and talk about them, uh, kind of as a prelude. A prelude to what? 
prelude, not a prelude. I'm thinking of something else, a forward. I don't know. I was thinking about this today (laughs) and yesterday, actually. Um, Talking about explorers, which kind of brings up exploration, right? And we, we often think of the age of exploration, this time where Europeans in the 14th, 15th, 16th century just started spreading their themselves all over the world, right? Just exploring uh, rapidly. And of course, it does miss some of the big other explorers in history around the world. When we study the age of exploration, it's the age of European exploration, but exploration is this human characteristic that's been around since, you know, whoever was kind of kicking it around in the Middle East or Africa uh, 8,000 years ago. And then they started exploring, right? Like you're, as a kid, you explore, you want to go to the edge of the yard. You want to go right up to the street. You want to uh, go over the hill and see what's beyond it. Um, for those of us that had bikes as a kid, right? Like you want to bike a little bit further each time. Um, even if you know what's out there to do it yourself, is kind of a big deal. And so it, <clears throat> it's not really any surprise that exploration is not tied to European history. It's just a human thing. And so if you want to go back 8,000 years and those first kind of people that were living, they they had to, if you're hunting and gathering and you've got a small village, you have to explore because once you hit a certain population, the land can't support you. And even when you start farming and agriculture takes hold, you still have a limit to how many people can live in a place. So it's just natural that humans spread out and to do so they have to explore. And so a book I read uh, last year kind of on exploration got into this and that you know, uh, especially that, that European exploration, while it was driven from one end, that is the European end, they were meeting up with people who had made their way to that part of the world from the other direction, right? So the native peoples in the Americas that Europeans were meeting had made their way to the Americas previously from Asia and the Pacific and those places. So it's, it's just kind of an interesting topic because um, even as European explorers were coming over, the people they, they worked with to explore these places better were the natives. And so the natives became explorers as well because they had been exploring. They knew the lay of the land. And so they ended up helping. We think of like Sacagawea helping Lewis and Clark and, um, uh, to uh, um, helping James Cook um, in the South Pacific. So exploration is just this kind of, it's a human characteristic. And so uh, the explorers we're gonna talk about tonight um, come from all over the world uh, because why wouldn't they, right? So that's just what was on my head, so. You know, it's funny though, as, as you mentioned Sacagawea and my wife said, well, why don't you have her be one of your explorers for this discussion? And I said, because she's not an explorer, she's Google Maps. Meriwether Lewis and Clark are the explorers. She's the one that helps them get to where they need to go. So, but not to, I guess, reduce your point, but you are right, is that the natives obviously explored all of the Americas 
thousands of years ahead of Europe getting there. Um, and and the, the peoples coming out of the Fertile Crescent and the Nile, um, exploring from that to Africa, to Asia, to Europe and, and, and all over. Um, I mean, that's what they were. That's the human condition is to find new places. Boldly go. Where? Yep. No, no, <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, so the format is similar to what we've done, um, what we did last time with kind of the what ifs. Uh, we're going to have a timer instead of five minutes. So we're going to do 10 minutes this time, right? And so we each have an explorer that we want to talk about. Um, and so we'll do a 10 minute discussion, not necessarily what if, but just kind of a 10 minute here's who they were, here's what they did, and, and then we can kind of bounce off from there. Does that sound about right? That works. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Um, I guess with that, I'll go first. Time's already up. I guess time's already up. Look at that. All right. I am starting now. So the explorer that I picked was uh, Juan Ponce de Leon. Um, born in 1474 in Santa Veras de Campos, Spain. Um, although some historians say he was born possibly in 1460. So I don't know how you have a 14 year gap there, but there's, I guess, some conflicting records. Uh, he was born into a noble family and uh, he kind of grew up as a squire to a, a knight named Pedro Nunez de Guzman, a knight commander of the Order of Calatrava. And when he was a squire, he fought in the Spanish campaigns against the Moors um, as part of the reconquest of Spain and eventually pushing them out of Grenada uh, in 1492, which is the same year that Columbus set forth um, to find the, the sea route to Asia. Uh, Leon joined Columbus in 1493 on his second voyage to the New World as a gentleman volunteer, which I think is just a wonderful title, um, although I don't know what that did other than they probably just had to swab the decks. Um, by 1502, he was serving under Governor Nic uh, Nicolas de Ovando in Hispaniola, in Hispaniola's modern-day Haiti and Dominican Republic, that island. Um, he crushed a, a rebellion of native Tainos and was awarded the frontier governorship of Higüey in Hispaniola. As governor, he exploited the Tainos um, and used them for farming and gold and silver mining. Uh, he set forth in 1508 to the island now known as Puerto Rico um, because the natives told him um, all of all the riches and fertile land there in Puerto Rico. Yeah, it's a usual story, isn't it? Like, yeah, isn't it? Head well, over it's there. Funny. They it's, they got what you need. It's way richer than here. You want to go over there? <laughs> and they're like, well, we'll go there too. We'll just take that. Like, I don't know if they're just really bad at bargaining or like, I don't know what the plan was because I feel like they're trying to set him up and he got there and then he conquered those people too. Um, but so he takes over Puerto Rico, gets all this gold, um, returns in 1509 to Hispaniola. Eventually he subjugated the entire island and put down a rebellion by 1511. Here's where his story and the theme of my um for this explorers is failed explorers. Um, and so here's where things start to turn south for him. In 1512, he's awarded by King Ferdinand for his loyal service to the crown. 
um, to find the islands of Bimini. And the islands of Bimini were, again, the natives, the, the specifically uh, the Tainos, the ones that lived on Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, told him and others of this, these islands of Bimini whose waters had restorative properties and would grant you eternal youth. And so the fountain of youth uh, legend was born. Um, so he left Puerto Rico in 1513 and he headed northwest until, until he discovered a new island on April 2nd and he named that island La Florida. When they left Florida, they headed back, when they were heading back to Hispaniola, they were actually blown back inland and they had to make anchor. And the winds that were blowing them back inland were the Gulf Stream. So he inadvertently discovered the Gulf Stream, which after that, that's how all Europeans used. Like a private jet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The G6, it was awesome. Yeah, all the, all the Europeans used a private jet to get back and forth between the New World. I mean, that makes sense. But it's just funny, right? On his way back, he discovers the Gulf Stream, which allows the transport between Europe and the New World to go much, much quicker. Um, I mean, so he discovers this. Is this something that he recognizes or later no, on? He's like, oh. He had no idea at the time, but then later on, I guess they kind of like, oh, well, we can follow this and it goes up the coast and then back to the, to Spain. And then it comes back down and around. And so that's, they just, before that they were crossing and they were just doing it the old fashioned way with no, you know, with prevailing winds, but um, then they discovered the Gulf Stream. Um, but uh, eventually he captures some uh, natives. They're called Calusa. They lived on Florida. At this time, the Spanish thought Florida was just another island. They didn't think it was part of a, a continent or a mainland. Um, in 1521, so about eight years had passed, he returns back to Florida to colonize it, again, searching for the fountain of youth and to um, exploit the population there and take the resources. Um, but he was attacked by those same Calusa natives that had that he had encountered his first time. He was shot in the thigh with a poisoned arrow with the sap of the manichineal tree. Uh, his men took him to Havana, Cuba, where he died, and then eventually he was buried in Puerto Rico. So I have some thoughts on this. I don't, and I guess I'll just say the first one. Uh, his love adventure um, took him from the reconquest of Spain um, and I think that's, he's just got that kind of wanderlust, that idea of like adventure and excitement. Um, then he joined up with Columbus and then he went on his own excursions. Um, some thought the fountain of youth was actually a Bahamian love vine, which was brewed as an aphrodisiac and that Ponce de Leon wanted to market it. He didn't want it for eternal youth. He didn't believe that, but he thought he could sell it. Um, Woodrow Wilson, our president thought it was a brown tea that was brewed in Puerto Rico. And in search for eternal youth, he met his death, which is the ultimate irony, if that's what actually he was looking for. Um, his search for a longer life led to his quicker death. So those are my first thoughts. Uh, I just thought, I don't know, he's just a really interesting guy. And you know, I've, I've heard the story of the fountain of youth and discovering Florida, but I didn't get into a lot of the details before now. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned is the the Gulf Stream, right? Like he mm -hmm. discovered it and 
either through immediately he realized that could be used or through his writings, other people realized, hey, we can use that. Now, it makes me think back to a couple of other explorers, and I want to say it was uh, Bartholomew Diaz, and uh, uh, there's another Portuguese one that's not coming to mind, but, you know, initially they they took their trips and they from Portugal, they traveled south along the coast of Africa, right? And so the first guy went down along the coast of Africa and he hugged the coast the whole way, got down to the Cape of Good Hope, and then turned around, came back. And then he passed on his knowledge. He said, hey, when you get to, um, you know, this particular point, you can actually just cut and, and take this straight line, stop hugging the coast, but take this straight line and, and you'll hit the southern end of Africa, but you don't need to hug the coast the whole way, right? Mm -hmm. And so that that shortened the journey, and then they went around the Cape of Good Hope, and and they they like made it, you know, a little bit further up the, the eastern coast of Africa. And then they came back and they said, all right, you can go around the eastern coast of Africa. And the next guy, knowing that you could take that shortcut, did that, and they were able to go all the way around to the Horn of Africa. Uh, almost, I think they may have even gotten as far as like Mumbai in India. And then it was the fourth ex explorer who took that. But when he tried to cut across the Bay of Benin, uh, Bay of Benin in Africa, he got blown off course and ended up discovering Brazil. Yeah. Because that's probably the closest distance between the old world and the new world right there. Um, and so all these little explorations build on each other, um, even within the course of a generation or two you know it's so rare that these guys get any real personal gain i mean if, if you're these explorers usually you just end up dead with a good story but guys who are looking for cities of gold and fountains of youth i mean he's out there he's trying to hit a home run like i don't want to discover a continent or continents that are going to flourish a thousand years after i'm gone like i want a fountain of youth i want a city of gold i want to go home and roll hard this is yeah you know, but it ends up being something that happens way down the road. And do these guys ever end up with anything really wonderful at the end of their journey? Well, it's funny because he Just, had all that in Puerto Rico, right? He was the governor. He was raking it in and he had all of that. But he just, you know, he was always looking for more and more and more. Just couldn't um, stop. Yeah, yeah, it's like Jeff Bezos. You've got a hundred billion dollars while... Or Tom I'm Brady. He's going to die. <laughs> that doesn't help. Yeah. Well, and one last thing, because we're almost out of time, is I do think it's ironic, or I think it's funny, is that, you know, the, the Fountain of Youth is in Florida, and yet today, all of our seniors <laughs> travel to Florida searching for, for a little bit more of, of the good life. And I, I just think there's a, a beautiful irony to that. And that's yeah. our 10 minutes. All right. Or do we, are we allowed stoppage? I don't know, Eric. Is that what I mean, we're doing? we can do some stoppage. Listen, it's okay. I'm, I can handle it in post, is all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. All right. Who wants to go next? All right, I'll go next. Okay. All right. Start my timer. So when we uh when we originally talked about this topic, it was uh we were a little loose on what we were going for as explorers. Um I didn't get too loose on what I ended up picking, but I'm going with Amelia Earhart, who um, not an explorer of, of new lands per se. I've already gotten a snicker and some look out of Eric there. Um, he doesn't approve, but 
Um, no, no, it was <laughs> it referred. Never mind. We'll talk about yeah, it later. Yeah. <laughs> we'll all that later, I'm sure. But you know, she, she's clearly a pioneer. She did uh, she did amazing things. Uh, born in 1897, all the way through to her uh, disappearance in 1937. She was an American, of course, born in Atchison, Kansas. Uh, Amelia Earhart was only the 16th woman ever to get a pilot's license. In 1928, this is a, a little less known and an and odd thing to be famous for, but in 1928, she was the first female passenger to cross the Atlantic by airplane. So oh. somebody else flew the airplane, she rode in the airplane, and she achieved celebrity status for being the first female passenger. I did not know that, and I'm still not sure what I think of that. Um, most of the flight was on instruments, and Erhard had no training for this type of flying. Uh, she didn't pilot the aircraft at all. They interviewed her after she landed, and she said, Schultz did all the flying, had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. So um, I think she gets it, too. So um, I don't know who the joke's on. In, uh, in 1932, she made a nonstop solo transatlantic flight, becoming the first woman to achieve that feat. Uh, she was awarded the United States Distinguished Flying Cross for that accomplishment. In 1935, she became the first person, male or female, to fly solo from Hawaii to the U.S. mainland. Um, this had, uh, it, it, it had been tried many times. It doesn't seem like that big of a feat, but it was 2,500 miles nearly to a 2,408 mile flight. Uh, that had claimed the lives of several people who had tried before her. So um, it wasn't without peril. She was the author of many books. They were all about her uh, and her own exploits. Um, in 1935, she became a visiting faculty member at Purdue University uh, and an, an advisor to the aeronautical engineering and also a career counselor uh, to women's studies. She was a member of the National Women's Party and, as you would imagine, an early supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. So now to what we all know her for, uh, she made two attempts to circumnavigate the globe. First one started on March 17th, 1937. Uh, the attempt was called off. Um, and the first one went from, from east to west. So the first one she went from, I believe it was from Oakland to Hawaii. There was a problem on landing. They lost the tire, lost the, uh, the landing gear. And the problem was actually cited as pilot error. So I don't know exactly what happened. There's, you know, with so many things with Amelia Earhart, there's a lot of conflicting reports out there and a lot of conjecture one way or another. But apparently she did something that, that brought that first attempt to a screeching halt. Second attempt lifted off from Miami, June 1st, 1937. This one going west to east. Um, during the attempt, Earnhardt and her navigator, Fred Noonan, disappeared famously over the uh, Central Pacific Ocean near Howland Island on July 2nd, 1937. So uh, about a month after she first started. Uh, this was one of the flight's final legs. She really just had to make it from, uh, from New Guinea back to, the, uh, back to the United States. And um, it was pretty much done for, um, or she was pretty much finished. Um, others had flown around the world but her flight would have been the longest at nearly 29,000 miles because it followed an equatorial route. The two were last seen in Ley, New Guinea on July 2nd, 1937 on the last land stop before Howland Island. 
nearly one year and six months after the disappearance, she was officially declared dead. Investigations and significant public interest in their disappearance continue today, of course. Uh, there was apparently a terrible movie made recently that I did not watch, but um, it was widely panned. A lot of the theories, uh, the most predominant is the old crash and sink theory, which is exactly what it sounds like. Just ran out of fuel searching for Howland Island and ditched the airplane. There's a Gardner Island hypothesis. Gardner Island is a, an, an island near Howland Island. Uh, there are a lot of theories that they crash landed there nearby. Um, no proof to that one way or the other. At the end of the day, there's a Japanese capture theory um, where she's captured and likely executed by the Japanese military. And uh, even another theory where she lived and assumed another identity. Um, once you start digging into these theories of Amelia Earhart, there is a lot of effort on both sides to prove and disprove all this stuff. So um, it, it gets really complicated and tough to track down and people continue working on it today. Um, she was first and foremost, she was a celebrity back in her time, um, you know, and, and she did a lot for the women's movement and uh, flight and for America brought a lot of attention, but um, she was, she was definitely a celebrity and worked hard to uh, promote that and keep it going in the right direction. So, uh, but anyhow, that is, that is my explorer, Amelia Earhart. Do you guys have any, any thoughts or comments on her? I, I do know she was part of a group called the 99s, which is a international organization of women pilots. And she was a, uh, I don't know if she was like a charter member of it or, but she was president for several years. Um, she was a founding member of the 99s. Yeah. It's, um, and I only know about the 99s because of my sister who uh, did receive her pilot's license and, and told me that she was, I think, I don't know if she had joined the 99s or went to one of their meetings, um, but that it was this organization for female pilots um, started in 1929. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, the one thing obviously exploring as she did with the airplane and, and breaking those barriers, but also uh, kind of breaking the barriers you know, for women um, in the early 20th century is kind of a big deal. Well, it's, they had these, you know, there's these notions, right? And I think what Jeff said, it was, you know, she rode as a passenger across the Atlantic first, right? And, and, and it was almost like to see, well, can a woman even handle being in a plane that long, right? Like that was the kind of snide mentality that a lot of people had like well, a woman's constitution couldn't possibly handle the rigors of flying a plane and and not only did, could she fly a plane but she did it better than everyone else except for maybe Lindbergh you know what I mean like that was it it was him and her they were the first to do it and that was it for the solo flights across the Atlantic and he was a Nazi so his doesn't even count anymore <laughs> yeah so you got that um there you go but, and another thing that you brought up, Jeff, was when she crashed, you know, and there's all these theories and, and I think they're really fascinating, but I think generally, right, the theory that most likely happened probably happened and she probably just crashed into the ocean. And yeah, she, she as probably sad as that is looking for that last leg and cause yeah. you know, that last, that last leg that they were on, the, the vast majority of it was at night and instrument ratings back then were far different than they are now. A lot of it was dead reckoning, um, being able to hone in 
on a radar signal was relatively new and she may or may not have understood it that well, uh, her and her co-pilot, they may not have had the correct instrumentation because that's some of the problems with the investigations is um, there's different technologies happening on both ends of that. It wasn't, uh, there's there still a lot of experimentation going on in aviation back then. So it, it, yeah. it was very difficult. And if she's doing some sort of dead reckoning or something like that, it's gotta be awfully easy to lose a small island in the South Pacific. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we take a lot of that stuff for granted now. And like Eric was saying, previous explorers is the reason we do that is because, you know, we have to build off that knowledge that everyone else had. Um, same thing with Amelia Earhart is she was giving us knowledge that we had never had before in aviation. And she was using stuff that had never been used before in aviation. And so it was all new. Um, and so I, I think as sad as it is, I mean, she, her and as a Paul Noon and her co-pilot probably just crashed into the ocean and, and maybe they, they got onto an Island for a bit, but I mean, it's a small, no, small it's Island in a big ocean. Right. And, and there's no concrete evidence there. There hasn't been any wreckage found. There was a photograph at one point, but none of the timelines add up. The photograph would have been of her on a, on a Japanese ship. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's all been debunked. So until somebody, and there's been a lot of effort put into digging all this stuff up, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, yeah, they're, they're, they've never found the, the smoking gun as it were for the, the actual aircraft. That was the time. That was our 10. That was it. That was good. Eric, you're up. Eric Hoffman, All right, are you ready? Sure. Let's do this. You're going to give your report to the class? I am. I'm about to do this. Yeah. So um, I was kind of stuck because I, I had some ideas in mind of some people, but then um, I wanted to go another route just because I kind of wanted to see things moving um, <clears throat> where historically they kind of move from the east to the west. I wanted to move in the other direction. So uh, I didn't pick a person, although I do have a person to talk about, but I wanted to talk about Polynesian wayfinders. Um, so Polynesian wayfinders go back as far as like six or 8,000 years. Um, you know, it, it's kind of characterized in the, the film Moana. I know we're all fans. Um, <clears throat> but the idea that the Polynesians, especially you know, those that occupy the islands of Hawaii and Tahiti and Samoa, um, they have this rich heritage of wayfinding and using their, their double-hulled canoes, um, you know, kind of what our catamarans are built on now, that, that design of spreading across the Pacific. So one thing to consider is there is this um, kind of chronological dispersion that happened um, starting around 3000 BC <clears throat> from places like Thailand or Taiwan, uh, Vietnam areas, um, where people going from there into the islands of like Borneo and Sumatra, the Malay Peninsula and the Philippines. Uh, and and that, that being like in 2200 BC and 1000 BC, and then spreading out even further from there into Melanesia, uh, in about 1300 BC, 
into Micronesia about 1500 BC and 200 BC. And Micronesia would be like the Caroline Islands and the Marshall Islands, uh, Kiribati, Guam. Um, and then in AD 500, there's evidence to suggest that they went as far uh, west as Madagascar along the African coast and the Comoros Islands. And of course, these they're, they're going to be going on these tiny islands in the water. So you mentioned uh, Amelia Earhart and Paul Noonan trying to make, uh, you know, this last leg from a tiny island to another tiny island at night, um, just trying to spot the thing um, where they have the advantage of the air. The Polynesian wayfinders, these navigators, don't have the advantage of being on the air because they're on the water. Um, <clears throat> but their spread is going to take them um, in like 800, 900 AD um, to New Zealand, to Tonga and Samoa, off to Tahiti, uh, the Marquesas Islands, um, even there to Rapa Nui, which is Easter Island, and then around 8900 to the islands of Hawaii. Now, the reason this is, I find this fascinating, is they're doing this without any of the instruments that the Europeans would have had, right? Like they don't have the compass or the astrolabe or uh, any of any of those things that would help them determine latitude. They're doing this um, basically by memory. So <clears throat> there's several theories that, that kind of come about here. First of all, if you go back, um, say, 6,000 years ago to some of these people on these mainlands, they've got these double-hulled double canoes, right? Kind of like our catamans or uh, outriggers, right? So you've got these extra boats out to the side and those give you stability. And they give you stability because if you're an explorer and you're heading out to sea, you actually wait until you've got the winds coming your direction. And you do that because if you go out and you have an issue, you can let the winds bring you back, right? Because anyone who explores wants to know, I can make it back if something goes wrong. And so knowing the winds, uh, the prevailing winds in the South Pacific go from east to west. Anytime you're going east, you're going into the wind and you might be able to come right back. So these uh, double-hulled canoes are called va'atauna. Um, and you're going to go into the wind and you're doing trial and error, right? You're going out, seeing what you can find, coming back, going out a little bit different direction, see what you can find, come back if you need to. <clears throat> and one of their, uh, one of these sailing techniques, again, I'm not a sailor. Um, I've never managed to figure out how boats work other than they float, but um, is tacking. So tacking is a method by which um, you'd sail into the wind and then you'd use the momentum you're getting from the wind. You'd steer away and let your momentum carry you through the water. And then you'd cut back, get the wind again, and then cut back against the wind with your momentum. So it's, it's, you're constantly going back and forth so that you can use as much power that the wind is giving you to go into the wind. It's, it's, I don't understand it completely, but it's what they did. Um, their navigation techniques included use of, um, they found evidence of like a stick map where they have these sticks kind of tied together and the, where the sticks cross is where islands are, right? Because they have to keep all these islands in their heads. 
uh, they would observe birds, right? So if they see a flock of birds, um, <clears throat> if it's during the day, the birds would be flying away from land. So you sail the direction the birds came from to find land. If it's at night, you just follow the path of the birds. Um, and they use this technique to the point that they could identify certain birds and know that bird was from this particular island. Um, and they kind of recognize certain birds as being from certain island chains. They use stars. Um, they had star, star charts. And again, all of this is memorized, right? This is memorized through song and, and stories told down. They would memorize stars. And so as long as a star was within a certain distance of the horizon, um, you could point your, uh, your boat, your canoe toward that star until it got too far above the horizon. Then you got to find another one to follow. Um, and again, like I said, it's all memorized by song. So there's one uh, navigator uh, who's kind of famous. His name is uh, Tupaia, uh, Tupa um, and he's from 18th century Tahiti. Um, and he accompanied James Cook, who discovered the Sandwich Islands, which are Hawaii, which he named the Sandwich Islands, um, kind of as a navigational assistant. Now, James Cook didn't really think he was all that great, but uh, one, of, one of the other ship's mates said, hey, you, I, we need your help. And he was able to draw a map of some hundred islands and where they were, all from memory, um, around Tahiti. And, you know, so um, he was originally from uh, Raiatea. Uh, he was attacked by Bora Bora warriors, and then he had to flee to Tahiti. Um, he eventually became like the lover of the queen there. And then he got picked up by James Cook. And he dies um, at the age of 44 from a fever on one of the islands. But he helps this European exploration with all their tools to navigate all these islands that are in the South Pacific. Um, the Polynesians, however, it's, it's believed that they made it as far east as South America, that there's evidence of sweet potatoes on South Pacific islands that came from South America. There's evidence of South East Asian chickens as far east as South America, where they found chicken bones there. So it's possible there's some trade between these South Pacific Polynesians and South America, even North America. So uh, yeah, that was kind of fascinating to me, um, was Polynesian it's explorers. To think of them going those distances and even having a cargo of trade items in a, in a canoe with an outrigger, that's Remarkable. Yeah, so the, the double-hulled canoes, they're, they're kind of strapped together like a raft, so they can carry a ton of stuff in the middle, including live animals, right, and people, and yeah, it's, now they, uh, there was a group in 1974, and I really wish Nick was on uh, when his wife comes home, I'll have to ask her, uh, they built one of these double-hulled canoes and only used Hawaiian navigational techniques to sail from Hawaii to Tahiti, I think. That was it. No GPS, nothing. Just wayfinding with the stars and the wind and the birds. Which is funny, right? They, they mastered deep water navigation centuries, if not millennia, before not only Europe, but China, Japan, mm -hmm. Africa, the rest of the world. And 
I think their geography forced them to, right? Because they were, yeah. I mean, everything about them was island lives. They had to learn if they wanted to go communicate with other islands, they had to learn how to do this. Yeah. So whereas Europe, you know, they could, in Europe, you could always hug the coasts and you could always yeah. get to another country and other people, but you couldn't do that. Even the uh, Chinese treasure fleets, what's interesting there is they'd sail from China, they'd go to like Arabia and the Horn of Africa. And you'd think, well, it's, it might be simple for them to follow some of those island chains, the Philippines, uh, like Borneo, down to Australia. I mean, it's not big leaps between those islands, but that's not anywhere near. I mean, at no point do they sail off and go find one of these islands because they knew they could just hug these, these coasts. Yeah. Well, and well, we're out of time, but yeah, that's awesome. That was a good one. So Jeff, do you have a second one? Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got Marco Polo. So, okay. Some quick facts on uh, Marco Polo, a medieval explorer known for traveling along the Silk Road to China, where he explored and documented much of Asia, not yet explored by the Europeans. He was born in 1254, uh, died in 1324. He was an Italian and he's from Venice, so also a, a Venetian. He was a merchant in Venice from a merchant family before he became the famous explorer. Um, his uncle, and his father actually made the journey before he did. Um, they left, I believe, when he was three, and then they returned many years later. And ultimately, they all three of them made the trip again when they were uh, when he was seventeen, and they left. So they traveled the Silk Road to China, where he met uh, the great ruler Kublai Khan, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan, uh, still a very powerful man. Um, and his stories were written into Marco Polo's stories were written into popular culture and, uh, you know, just became a, very much part of our life. He, uh, he, he was not the first person to do it, but certainly the most famous. Um, his story, like I said, really begins with his father and his uncle's journeys. They left Venice in 1254, traveled east. Uh, Marco wouldn't see his father again until he was 15 years old. China and other parts of Eastern Asia were all ruled by Kublai Khan. He had a massive empire uh, that Genghis Khan established and he uh, continued to oversee. Kublai Khan was responsible for reopening a 5,000 mile trade route between Europe and Asia called the Silk Road. And the Polo family traded on this route for many years. Uh, Kublai Khan got to know Marco Polo personally. He was very interested in the Polo's culture and religion, very interested in Christianity. Um, he wanted Marco Polo to serve as one of his ambassadors to the West. Uh, he gave the Polos a letter to deliver to the Pope. And in that letter, he asked the Pope to send over 100 priests and enough holy water to convert all of his people to Christianity. And it wasn't until 1271 that they were able to return to, to the Khan and uh, this time with young Marco Polo with him. Marco Polo's journey started in 1271, heading out to China. Uh, he was 17, as I said. They, only, <laughs> they were only able to get two priests to go with him. I'm not <laughs> sure what the problem 
that's a that's a significant delta from the 100 that were requested. But uh, yeah, so two pre. So I'm, I'm not sure how much converting they actually got done. I don't know how much holy water they brought with them. Maybe explain that, hey, we can make holy water whenever we want. So we don't need to travel with it. Um, I'm sure there were some conversations about that. Uh, they sailed the Mediterranean to the Middle East, and then they traveled over land all the way through Persia, which of course is modern day Iran. They went through the Gobi Desert, Mongolia, along the Silk Road, and into China. Uh, this voyage took about three and a half years until they finally got to Kublai Khan's palace. Uh, Marco Polo was good with languages. He already knew four languages prior to his journey. Uh, and apparently he was able to quickly pick up the Asian language and writing, which is surprising because clearly not a romantic language, very different from anything you would have been used to. Um, so that's pretty amazing. I thought that he was able to pick that up. Kublai Khan was impressed with Marco Polo. Marco Polo became a part of his court. Um, and that was when he made Marco Polo one of his ambassadors. Uh, Marco Polo had special permission from the Khan to travel freely throughout the Mongol Empire, and uh, it was obviously very unique. He served the Khan for 17 years before deciding to head back home to Venice. Uh, after all of his years of traveling on the Khan's behalf, Marco Polo had knowledge of or had actually visited a vast number of countries all over the world. At first, the Khan was not willing to let the three polo men leave because he'd become dependent on their services. They were critical to him. Uh, obviously, he eventually allowed the men to return home. They chose to sail home rather than make the trek over land. The journey still was long. They went across the Indian Ocean, took two years. They got back to Venice around 1295. And at that point, Marco Polo had been gone for 24 years on this journey. They were not welcomed home warmly like they had hoped. They'd been away so long that when they got home, they struggled to speak Italian again and were physically unrecognizable to their own families. Huh. Marco Polo told his story to the people. Many of them just simply didn't believe his great voyage. And a, a few years after he returned to Venice, war broke out between Venice and Genoa. Uh, Marco Polo was captured during a naval battle, and while in prison, he told his story to a fellow prisoner who wrote down all of this in, uh, in detailed accounts of his travels to the East. Um, one account that I read said that this person that he dictated this to was actually a, a, an ancient author of fictional romances. So I don't know what the odds are getting locked up with that guy, but there they were in the same cell. Um, the Polos were not the first Europeans to reach China and the East, but his travels were inspiring. Um, he, he continued his life as a merchant. Uh, he never left Venice again. He married in 1300, had three daughters, and died at home uh, in, 19, or 19, in 1324. He was about 70 years old. Uh, he wrote about the landscape, the Middle Eastern people, details about the Mongol Empire, uh, obviously, his descriptions and his accounts were wildly popular uh, to this day. There, um, I believe there's Netflix series about Marco Polo. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's very good. Uh, these descriptions gave many Europeans their first look at vast civilizations to the east. Uh, very well established and yeah, huge civilizations, which, you know, it, it's interesting because most of the time, the Europeans are finding other civilizations and they're not finding anything that's on par with what they have. But that was 
That was very much the case here. Um, his original book is lost. It's translated many times into different languages, and a lot of these translations conflict with each other. Um, but and you know that's the that's the the short version of Marco Polo and his uh, his famous connection along the Silk Road to the Far East. Well, and what's interesting is a lot of these European explorers that we talk about that are heading to the New World, right? Their whole goal is not to find a new continent, it's to get back to China and to get back to India. Because at this point, the Silk Road is no more, it's all broken up, there is no contiguous empire. And so they have to go through all these hostile lands to get back to China. And, and so they're like, well, let's sail across the other way. And, uh, but a lot of that desire to get back to China was, be, it was because of Marco Polo. I mean, eventually his story caught on and, and Europe wanted to get, you know, the, the fine China, literally the, the pottery and the silk and the spices. And, and they wanted to get all those things from the East and bring them into Europe. And conversely, a lot of things from the West, like um, certain types of knowledge and, and medical practices went back the other way um, as part of that communication between East and West. You know, in, in my digging around over different explorers, I, I find there's almost something in every one of these accounts of the Europeans handing off germs that are completely detrimental to the people that they've come in contact with. But I didn't find any of that in any of the Marco Polo stories. Well, in this case, it, it's the other way around. Because the bubonic plague came from the Mongolians. It, that's, it came from well, the- Right, so that's it's kind of like, it's like we talked about. I think Eric mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you were, you were looking for the story in reverse and um, this is as close as it's come. Oh, my wife, uh, she did comment on that episode from a couple weeks ago, and she said cholera. Cholera came from the New World. Okay. And went, hmm. to, the, and went to Europe. That's a good one. Nice. Is it? Is it a good one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a great yeah. point. Well, yeah, yeah. We, we've, uh, we've discussed previously, and we did an episode on the Mongols, right? How had uh, they been able to keep it together and maybe even hold their conquests in Europe down, the trade in knowledge and in wisdom and ideas between China, the Middle East and Europe that would have been, uh, I guess, promulgated by Mongol rule would have dwarfed any knowledge exchange we've seen since, right? Like up until the internet, the Mongols would have kind of tied together three massively important knowledge centers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree because like Jeff said, the Kublai Khan wanted to know more about Christianity mm -hmm. um, and because they didn't send the priests and when we discussed this in our previous episodes we discussed how the the for whatever reason the church did not send priests over in the numbers that were desired and but you know who did the the caliphs and um the sultan you know they sent uh imams over and eventually most of them converted to islam so um no that's a good one i i think marco polo is a fascinating character 
because it is right like nobody believed him like you said jeff like his story was too fantastic to believe but it all happened which is pretty amazing indeed um i do have a second one so i will get him pulled up and his name is henry hudson so you have the timer ready eric yeah it's going oh okay yeah, all right born in. in uh about 1565 uh, Henry Hudson, as far as I can tell, he, he spent his life on the sea. Um, he started out as a, a cabin boy and worked his way up to captain. Also, who's ever seen the movie Cabin Boy with Chris Elliott? It's fantastically bad, so I highly recommend it. Um, eventually, after he'd risen up to captain, he, he was hired by the Muscovy Company, which is a Russian and English company, um, to find the Northeast Passage. And so the Northeast Passage is literally what it, it sounds like. Um, it's a passage where going from England, you go north and then you head east to get across the ocean to China or to Asia, I should say. Uh, not just China, but um, all of East Asia. So this is how, now that the Silk Road is gone, this is, they're still trying to find a passage, a direct sea passage to East, um, east Asia, which is funny, right? Because Columbus thinks he's made it. And I think he ended up landing in Cuba, right? And Ponce de Leon thinks he makes it and he ends up like in Florida. And, and like, they just keep going in different directions, north and south, trying to find that one passage to get to Asia. Um, Something's and, in the way. Yeah, they just keep hitting something. It's, and they, surely it couldn't be a continent. Um, and, uh, but lo and behold, but so this is their other way of getting around that is, well, we can go north up towards the Arctic and then east um, across by Russia and then down to China. And so Hudson's hired in 1607 to do this. Um, he sails north along the east coast of Greenland. Eventually he encounters ice pack and he has to turn back south. In 1608, he's hired by the East India Company and the Muscovy Company um, again to find the Northeast Passage along the coast of Russia. He makes it about 2,500 miles before the ice pack hits and then he has to turn back. On 1609, he's hired by the Dutch East India Company. He was told to find the Northeast Passage, but had heard of a Northwest Passage going through North America. So what he does is he heads East for a bit and then he whips a Yui and he goes West. Um, which is totally outside of his contract with his employer. Um, and he heads east, or sorry, he heads west. Uh, he reaches Cape Cod in Massachusetts. He heads up the Hudson River, or what becomes the Hudson River, uh, and makes it up to present day Albany, New York, before he turns back and heads back to England. Uh, he gets back to England, he gets arrested, um, and they demand his logs, but he's able to get his. Um, ship log to the Dutch ambassador before he's arrested. In trouble um, for that Yui? Yeah, they, didn't, they did not care for that. Eventually, he gets another ship in 1610 and um, he flies under the Virginia and East India Company. So he reaches uh, Greenland on June 4th. He reaches the Hudson Strait or what becomes the Hudson Strait on the tip of Labrador in Canada, which is Kind of almost like far. he was destined to discover these particular I know. waterways yeah, it's like 
it's like, oh, it's named after me. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. And then eventually he enters what becomes Hudson Bay on August 2nd. He spends, and here's the thing, right? Every other, every one of his trips, right? He runs into ice, has to turn back, runs into ice, has to turn back, runs up a river and turns back. And this time he gets into the Hudson Bay, which is massive. It's just gigantic. And he's like, all right, guys, we made it. And they're like so excited. So they're mapping the coast. And unfortunately, the Hudson Bay is a giant watery cul-de-sac. Um, there is no passage through to the Pacific Ocean. So they spend months mapping the coast, which is awesome. They get all these detailed maps. Um, but eventually, they get stuck in ice in November. Uh, the crew has to move on to the shore for the winter. And then the ship eventually breaks free. And Hudson wants to keep exploring. But the crew wanted to go home. So they mutinied in June. And um, the mutiny, um, they take Hudson, his teenage son, and seven other crewmen, put him in a shallop, which is a type of open boat with a sail and oars in the bay. And they give them gunshots, powder, pikes, pots, food, and other items. And they leave. They leave him in the bay about 50 miles from the coast. And in the log from this guy, his name is uh, Prickett, uh, who wrote the log, he says that they tried to keep up with the ship for a while, and then eventually the ship felt bad, so then they opened, the crew of the ship felt bad, and so they opened their sails and, and left him in the dust. Um, and that's, <laughs> <laughs> which, like, oh, this is just sad, like, just go home, like, and, uh, some stray dog that's following exactly. you on the vacation. Dad's kicked the dog out. Yeah, the dog's keep, barely keeping up. And so out in the were, rain. Were they just sandbagging it for a few days and like, oh, yeah, all right, like, let's actually had, go. They only had like half sail for a bit, and they're like, oh god, they're following us. This is awkward. Let's just go, <laughs> go, go. Um, and that's the last they ever saw of them. So, um, what's interesting though is the two mutineers or two of the lead mutineers, Green and Jouette. Um, were on Hudson's previous trip in 1609, and they're actually loyal sailors of his on 1609. So why mutiny now? Um, also, of the 13 mutineers, only eight returned back alive. Um, so in addition to the seven that they threw off the boat, um, five more died on the return trip. So there's a theory that the, the journal that Prickett, the guy that wrote this journal, he might have been uh, fudging the story a bit um, and blamed the mutiny on people that had died um, and or possibly killed Hudson outright and didn't, they didn't leave him in a boat at all. Um, so my thoughts, one, I think Hudson is like, he has got a, a set of stones because he, uh, I mean, persistence is a word that would define him, but the, the whole yeah, no, 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 I'll take your ship east. And then he immediately turns it, turns it west um, on one of his trips. And they still give him another ship after that, I think is amazing. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts are. I want to I have a couple other thoughts I want to say, but I don't know what else you guys want to bring up first. He didn't slaughter any natives. His ability to name stuff after himself is unparalleled. <laughs> For a guy that failed, he had a lot of stuff named after himself. I think the only... The only one who really tops that is Alexander. Yeah, but like Alexander actually conquered stuff. Hudson yeah, like this got town lost. will be Alexandria, and this yeah. town will be Alexandria. This town, we're going to call this one Alexandria. 
name one after so, my dad if you want but yeah. so what was was there any contact that hudson had with native americans well it's interesting um I, on his trip where he went up the river the hudson river and to albany when he reached back to england he had done some trading um with the native americans there um was furs and, and stuff like that that he brought back to England but uh, otherwise no I mean basically most of his ports of call were in Greenland which had already been discovered he found a pot of whales up in Greenland and he he added that to one of his logs I think it was on his first trip which increased the whaling industry the whalers loved it because they're like oh there's all these whales if we go farther north um, but other than that no it didn't seem like he, he had a ton of contact with Native American tribes but there is a question if Hudson and his crew and son survived for a while after, obviously they died eventually, but if they had survived for a while after they were marooned, um, because there was a tablet found in 16, that, I'm sorry, there's a tablet found in 1959, um, but it has written on it, HH, capital H, capital H, captive 1612. And it was found in Ontario uh, near the Ottawa River. And so conceivably, Hudson and his crew or some of them could have survived for a bit and then were picked up by Algonquins who were known for uh, taking in and or capturing uh, Englishmen and making them part of their tribes. So it is possible that they were picked up by natives um, sometime after they were abandoned. But I tend to think, like Jeff did with Amelia Earhart, the most simple explanation. For, uh, is generally speaking for, for North American tribes to keep their numbers up was very difficult. So that they would bring outsiders into their tribe a lot. I did a lot of reading on the, on, on the Comanches and when they, would, uh, when they would take over a settlement, as, as long as somebody wasn't too old or too young and they didn't want babies, and they didn't want anybody over the age of 15, but anybody under net, they would bring them in and make them one of their own because they had a hard time keeping their numbers up. That was probably the case up there as well. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first story we've heard of that in the new world. I mean, the, the lost uh, colony of Roanoke, right? And, and how they just disappeared and, and there's a good possibility that they had met with a, a, a local tribe and, and uh, merged together, so to speak. So, it is an interesting story for a guy that failed so much. He does have a couple of things named after him, um, almost in spite of his failure. Well, if you're still going to look for that passage, I mean, he's he's got to be the first guy on the list, right? I mean, until he yeah. basically steals your ship and goes the other direction. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he was determined to do it, and 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 with so many of these guys, and not just Hudson, but so many of these, especially European explorers, like the risk was worth the potential reward. Like, they, they, it, yeah, we'll probably die a short, brutal life no matter what we do. So why not try to, like you said, go for a home run? I mean, if you'd be the first guy that discovers the Northwest Passage, that's, that, that's a game changer. Significant. Time's up? Yeah, yeah. twice. Right. That's time. Oh, I got yelled at, okay, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. No, you got another I, one or no, I, I don't. I, I wanted to look a little into uh, Zheng He, who is a Chinese explorer and trader 
Uh, he was one of those admirals of the treasure fleets, which um, they're just, you know, when we think of European ships, these things are like maybe 90 feet long and they've got 40 sailors on them. But these treasure fleets were like 300 ships and they were massive ships. They were those, uh, those kind of square hulled ships that you've probably seen. Like um, barges. Yeah, and they had like 300 of them in a fleet with 28,000 sailors and Zhang He would take this uh, fleet a couple times all the way to Arabia, uh, to the Horn of Africa, and attempt to trade with cities along the coast there. So I didn't get a chance to look too deeply into uh, Zhang He uh, as I wanted to, but Can I, honorable mention. Yeah, I got another honorable mention. And I think I like these two guys because this is, they remind me of us if we were to become explorers, Eric. Oh, okay. Um, I think Jeff would fare a lot better than us, but definitely Probably. me and you would be in this guy. So in Australia in the 1850s and 60s, they were trying to find um, a passage from Sydney to, or from Melbourne um, up, uh, up across the outback to connect a, a telegraph line. And so that they could communicate with the rest of the world. And so two guys, I don't know if they volunteered or were voluntold, but Robert O'Hara- Oh, they probably were former prisoners, weren't they? No, Robert <laughs> O'Hara Burke and William John Wills were the two to lead this uh, expedition. Burke was an Irish policeman and former soldier who had never been to the Outback, uh, nor did he have any practical qualifications to make a 2000 mile journey to the North. Sounds like me. But, yeah, Wills, similarly, a surgeon with no ex experience or exploration of the outback. Here's where, here's where I think we're really like, this is where we oh, are these guys. not the lack of qualifications? No, that's just a teaser. <laughs> here's the equipment that they brought. A Chinese, a Chinese gong, a heavy wooden table with matching seats, a high quality grooming equipment for their horses, in all, they weighed, their supplies weighed 20 tons and 15,000 people watched as their snail paced departure from Melbourne in August of 1860. Within days, the men were squabbling and six of them quit on the spot. Like, <laughs> and if you just, they had 50, part of their equipment, they had 1500 pounds of sugar that they brought on this excursion to the Outback. Hey. Like, that's like if me and you were like doing a road trip, like, all right, Get six cases of Mountain Dew, 14 <laughs> bags of beef jerky, an Xbox Live. Yeah. I'm, bringing my, I'm bringing my Packers cheese hat because yeah. I want that. What about and, that? Uh, let's throw the couch on the back of the truck. Yeah. Well, what about things like, you know, a gas can or a spare tire? Da -da 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 -da. Xbox Live. We need that. <laughs> so suffice it to say, here's the thing. They eventually made it to the coast. They were more successful than Hudson. They made it to the coast and they told like, but on their way, like at one of the stops, they said, all right, guys, wait for us for like a month or two and we're going to hit to the coast and we'll come back. And they took four months to get back. And the day that they got back to this outpost was a day after their, the rest of their team had already left. And so like, <laughs> eventually they died. They died in the outback. That's the long story short. But I read that story. I'm like, this is us. If we were explorers in the 1800s yep. why 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 a chinese gone 
to let people know when it's dinner time, obviously. Like, Duh. why do you, why you do you need to cheat with it? You can cook <laughs> on it. It's very versatile. You can, make, you can make music. Like, I love it. it and they brought a it, like a giant dining table set because they want to be fancy in the outback. <laughs> like, it just for afternoon tea. Yeah. You know, at one point when I was researching explorers, I, went, I was thinking about tying in a Texas connection. So I Googled Texas explorers and the name that kept coming up was Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. And I read his story on a couple different places and there's a thin line between explorer and somebody who has to walk a long way and doesn't die, which is really what his story struck me as. Shipwreck near Galveston and ends up basically walking into the interior of Mexico not one mention of the stuff that he discovered or naming rivers and bays after himself but yeah having to convince the next Spaniards that he sees that he is in fact a Spaniard they're really not believing it because they all thought he was dead and so anyhow again didn't strike me as much of an explorer but just a guy who somehow survived an incredibly long walk and it brings it. it full circle to what exploration was, right? Just humans wandering away <laughs> and sometimes coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes you're hired by the dust wedge, the dust, the Dutch West Indies company. Sometimes you just are trying to find some more people that speak your language and have some food. And yeah. The rest of it's something in between. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. This was a fun one. It was fun to research some of these explorers. I was surprised nobody did the moon. Uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. I mean, yes, we always we've always seen that the moon is there, but they did wander well, around. It was part of the whole initial debate we had over what are explorers and yeah, you know, are they exploring the West, the American West? What what are our parameters? And it got thrown wide open but that was one of our initial things that we discussed mm -hmm. elon musk is gonna explore mars right oh he well he won't but somebody <laughs> he'll send will like but his name is gonna be all over it. <laughs> yeah it's gonna be musk lake and yeah. musk river and musk bay yeah i mean if you're the first person to mars don't you get to rename it right i think you should you've earned the That's right fair. you make the trip you earn the right to start naming things this is joey land <laughs> it's just like joey tribbiani from friends or sure i mean that's who they're setting up i don't know sounds good just a random joey yeah just to, like, hey joe you want to go to mars yeah okay how long does it take to... six months to get there no is that what it is six months it's about that yeah two years i thought it was two years well i don't have to worry about it because i'm not going is and where mars is when you launch it's yeah it's a variable length journey. Yeah. Yeah, unless someone turns the ship around like Hudson. We're going to Jupiter. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> I got a feeling, guys. So, hey, he named, he's got a whole bay named after Amanda River. What do I got? Yeah. So, can't, can't argue with the results, I guess. I mean, wasn't he left for dead in a frozen <laughs> bay 50 miles from shore and maybe we found a rock with his initials on it? I mean, technically, yes. 
it looks pretty warm in your house right now. I know it's toasty. Yeah, it's quite toasty. <laughs> and, and can I, is that a bathrobe you're wearing? It's not. It's a button sweater jacket okay. sort of thing. It had this kind of a, I don't know, sort of a Lebowski. Oh, it's got a bad, it's got a, it's got a rope-like vibe. I understand that. It's, it does. No, I, yeah, and I wasn't talking trash. I like it. I was thinking about stepping up my own rope game for the next episode. <laughs> Are we all going to oh, do that, ropes? Ropes that and That would pipes be a good, uh, next time. little theme to go with. Just wear robes. Smoking jackets, maybe. Smoking jackets. That's what we'll call them. Smoking, Smoking jackets and house coats. Yeah. I like it. I got to get one now, but sure, that's fine. All right, well, send that to the accounting department, right? Will do. You guys uh, got anything else? You want to wrap it up or? Yeah, that, yeah. that could no. be we about it. We've got the Super Bowls all set. We got mm-hmm. Tom Brady, the guy who's been playing forever, and Pat Mahomes, the new young stud. I mean, it doesn't get much better for the NFL, right? Yeah. Yeah. The NFL, who apparently is having a hard time selling ad spots for the Super Bowl. Have you read this? Uh, no, this would be the first time in history that they would have trouble selling ad spots. Yeah, and ads are cheaper than last year, and the salary cap next year is going to go down. Well, are they even going to have fans? Uh, I think I have some fans, I guess, in the Super Bowl, but it depends on capacity. the state. Well, it's, it's in, in Florida, in Miami. So it's- Probably Tampa Bay full stadium. It's in Tampa it's, Bay. Yeah. It's a home. Oh, is that Raymond James? Yeah. All right. So they'll have some fans. But they won't have that whole Super Bowl week. They won't have a Pro well, Bowl this year. Yeah, you've heard about the Pro Bowl, right? It's a Pro Bowl experience. Someone's just gonna play Madden against somebody else with an all-star team. Which will probably be more entertaining than the Pro Bowl that we've had in years past. Yeah, because players won't be worried about getting injured on Madden. Yeah, so they get to collect their Pro Bowl check and don't have to actually play. That's not a bad deal. No, that's that that's a win. I, I'd be okay with seeing my what what would what would my score be like a nineteen? Just throw me in there and send me a check. You think your Madden score is a nineteen? I don't know. It's not a ninety-nine. Maybe a four. I don't know. It's about a four. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you're not healthy or anything, but those players are freaks. Like, I know. I just threw out a low number. Should have gone we lower. About, I thought we were talking about like your gamer rating. You're talking about Eric Hoffman's actual counterpart in the game. Yeah. <laughs> so if he makes an Eric Hoffman avatar, that's a 14 is what he's saying. No, I said a 19, and I think that's way off. A 19. And you revised it to a four. I think four. that's not bad. Yeah. Like, I, I think, like, a backup punter is, like, at least a 30. So, I mean, let's let's just – You know what? It'd, it'd be a great turn in Madden if when you made a character, instead of making him just off the charts ridiculously good, if it had <laughs> terrible like, – it had to be your actual physical capability. It asks you, and like, prone what's to your the 40, same injuries you are. Like, like you do a combine, right? You have to physically go do a combine and tell it your numbers. So like, what's your forty? What's your forty time? Twelve. Like, <laughs> how many times did you bench press two twenty five? Did not complete. Like, One. Yeah. Shuttle shuttle drill fell. One like, and it's yeah. over. Is, yeah. is my avatar limping again? <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, constantly hurt. Did he stop running after seven yards? Hold on. Oh, man. I would play that game, though. I'm not saying I would play that game of Madden. I think I would, too. Because then we all put our avatars in, and then we're we're playing Madden for real against each other. And then we don't – yeah. And then we don't actually get hurt. I love it. I'm in. That's great. Let's uh let's get that working. Do we know a guy that can make that happen? I mean, do you own Madden? I mean, you could No, I no. don't. Well, I mean you can I, put your character in, just set the scores really low. But can we can we break it? Can we set them low enough to actually be realistic for us? Well, no, can you set them low enough but also to the point that the coach in game plays you? Right, like I, I think you're gonna have to be your own coach. And yeah, you gotta build your own team. You gotta be your own GM. Yeah, like yeah. no, we're not playing him. You. We spent a lot of money on him. You play him, but you're gonna do it. Yeah, yes, override the GM. Yes, we are playing Eric <laughs> at center. Man, Eric Hoffman <laughs> for the Arizona Cardinals. Hoffman must have some dirt on the owner because he is he's getting a great salary. Some dirt on the owner and a death wish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it. I just love it, love it, love it. Let's make that happen. All right. Hey, it was a good episode, guys. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Hey, next week, Dad Bought After Dark. Dad Bought After Dark. So. Saying. And we got some more stuff coming out. Uh, got another Labors of Hercules coming out later this week. And uh, we'll do some other stuff too. Hey, and keep Just an eye out. out around your neighborhood for some dad bod bumper stickers that are floating around. They're pretty yes. awesome. Car yeah. magnet, really nice. Hey, they stay on through car washes. Oh, did we test that theory? We did. Nice. It passed yeah. the test. Awesome. And then it rained two days later as every car wash ever has happened all right well thanks for joining us and uh make sure you guys like subscribe and follow and see y'all next time